Just in and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brands Park American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. The Bowery Boys episode 374. Gotham's Greatest Ghosts. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we are presenting a very special show to you today, something... You know, Greg, that actually seems kind of hard to believe. This is the mm-hmm. the Bowery Boys' 15th annual Halloween Ghost Stories podcast. How is that possible? Our first Ghost Story podcast was released on October 11th, 2007. Oh. Okay? George W. Bush was the president of the United States. Mike Bloomberg was the mayor of New York. The DVD rental company Netflix first began dabbling into streaming entertainment that year. Drag races were just for automobiles, and nobody knew who Lady Gaga was. <laughs> In fact, she was still going by Miss Gaga, actually. That's... <laughs> she was going by Lil Gaga. <laughs> Lil Gaga. That's how long ago this was. <laughs> and who was listening to us? We have no idea. Maybe nobody was listening back then, actually, Greg, but every year since... We have carried on this annual tradition every October of sharing spooky urban legends and folktales of old New York. Ghost stories from all five boroughs um, and beyond. So today we're going to celebrate. Celebrate the ghosts, witches, demons, creaking doors, and disembodied footsteps. Today we'll be representing several of our finest stories— our favorite stories, and yours. Since 2007, we have told more than 50 haunted tales and macabre stories that are directly linked to New York City history. And believe it or not, none of them have ever been fabricated. I mean, perhaps occasionally embellished, you know, with <laughs> with ghoulish effects, but all of them have been in some way real stories. They've been grounded in facts. Of course... Over the years, we have upped our sound effects and spooky music game a bit. Mm -hmm. Now, at the end of our show, we'll be doing something very special. We'll be returning to an old story from that original podcast from 2007. It's a story that both of us love, have always loved this tale, but we don't feel that we did justice to in that episode. And it's also a story that we feel a personal connection with now. 
And there's even a possibility that the ghost got angry with our mediocre telling of her story in the first place. (laughs) So to appease her today, we'll be giving it a second go later on in the show. Now, uh, since this is a special occasion, both of us are dressed up in our finest Halloween formal wear. So, you know, not my usual podcast apparel. (laughs) No, and maybe some would think that we were overdoing it today, you know, but (laughs) after the past 18 months, Greg, I mean... This starched collar feels great, I got to tell you. And your ascot is spot mm-hmm. on. I just <laughs> I just wish the listener could see you. Well, maybe I'll start wearing them more often, maybe <laughs> when I'm in the street. And actually, by the way, Cheryl Crow is here, mm. our regular Halloween guest, Cheryl Crow. She hasn't aged. Her eyes only get larger and larger. <laughs> She's dressed for the red carpet tonight, wearing a designer gown by Jean-Paul Gaultier. <laughs> uh, Bat Damon. I see Bat Damon is behind behind Cheryl. Who, yes, who is yes. he wearing? Well, he's wearing uh, a little number by Michael Gores. Mm. Even my little decorative pumpkins around me right now are in solid gold. Just special for this anniversary occasion. We've also got our cider, our donuts here. And, oh, we have a very exciting announcement to make about this Halloween. But, Greg, why don't you actually, can you cue the creepy music? Can we get that started? Oh, yes. So, listener, join us, if you dare, as we tiptoe through New York's most famous haunted houses and hunt down Gotham's greatest ghosts. So, our special announcement this Halloween, October 31st, 2021, we will be returning to the stage at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater, 8 p.m. on Halloween night, and the show is totally sold out. However, Joe's Pub will be live streaming the show as it takes place on their YouTube channel. So, everybody listening... You can join in on the fun Mm -hmm. virtually uh, by joining (laughs) us on the Joe's Pub YouTube channel. Right. So tune in on Halloween night and join us, virtually at least, on the stage of Joe's Pub. And then next year, come out and join us in person. Yeah. We are certainly hopeful that we will have more live events in the coming year. So true. And, And so business aside then, let's get ghosting. Now, you mentioned that today we'll be sharing our favorite ghost stories from the past 15 years. I will say that telling these stories is always a big highlight of the year. We obviously love New York City history on this show, right? And these stories are always embedded in historical events. In fact, I think you could say on a kind of a, on a larger scale that often telling scary stories like horror movies frequently tie in actual history and then blend it with urban legend. Mm -hmm. 
And many of my favorite ghost stories that I've told over the years were reported in newspapers as though they were facts, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe with a little knowing wink, perhaps, but reported in a very different way than it would be today. For instance, some of my favorites include the haunting of most Holy Trinity out in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, That was from 2011, involving the possible ghost of a monk and incorporating underground subterranean passages, which actually really exist. That's the other cool thing. You get to bring in buildings, the actual architecture, the kind of like kind of amazing, fantastical architecture of many of these places. I also enjoyed the Gay Street Phantom. Uh, That was an early show about a a phantom of the opera-like figure who haunts Gay Street. That's a classic. That is a classic. And even brings in Howdy Doody. It's always good when you can bring in a puppet, or a marionette in this case. But which one is your favorite? Well, we'll have to turn to our 2014 Ghost Story podcast, Ghost Stories of Brooklyn, and to a curious story about a doorbell. That wouldn't stop ringing. This next tale will not provide such easy explanation. It is, in fact, an unsolved mystery of the Brooklyn Police Department. The name of this story is Who's Knocking at My Door? I now turn your attention to a very old and curious house that's still with us today. 136 Clinton Avenue. Today it's landmarked as the Lefferts Laidlaw House. It's in the vicinity of the Fort Greene Clinton Hill neighborhoods in this old brownstone Brooklyn neighborhood. Bulk of the buildings surrounding it were built in the 1850s and 1860s. But this house is much older and quite unlike anything else in the neighborhood. The original building was constructed in 1835, but there were many additions that were completed after that. It's in the Greek Revival Temple style. What that basically means is, I mean, you can imagine a Greek temple. Sure. So it's almost like a southern style plantation. Um, the building sits back from the street about 40 feet, and the whole yard is surrounded by an old iron gate. And on the porch are, of course, those large white columns that dominate the front of the house. Several prominent residents have lived in this house over the years. Perhaps the most well-known is a man named the Colonel Marshall Lefferts, an engineer and a president of a telegraph company. Now, Lefferts is still a name that's with us today, right? This is an old New York name. Oh, yeah. It's an old... uh, It traces back to an old Dutch settler who bought land in the region of Flatbush. And the neighborhood today of Lefferts Garden, which is near Prospect Park, honors that particular connection. The house sat uphill from the waterfront. So if you're looking perhaps at a map, you'll notice that this house is very, very close to the edge of the water. And in fact, in this area, which was developed in the mid-19th century, into the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Over the decades around this house, more land was sold and new buildings constructed. Soon this tranquil little estate was beginning to be hemmed in by new neighbors all around it. By the Civil War, there was so much need for additional housing that 13 Clinton Avenue here began to take on borders, as well as having whole families with servants who lived here. So with so many people coming in and out over the years, it's difficult to know exactly what was the cause of the particular supernatural events which occurred here in December of 1878. During this particular month, a man named 
Edward Smith lived here with his wife and two daughters. Well, one day, there was a knock at the door. And so the servant went to go open the door and see who it was. But there was nobody there. The same thing kept happening the following day. And it kept repeating throughout the evening. And then the day after that, and the day after that, for two weeks... It grew more violent with each passing day. It was as though it were the sound of a large man, his fist furiously rapping against the door. The knocking would soon be joined by another sound, the ringing of the new doorbell. It kept ringing again and again. It would be held for almost a minute at a time, and it would soon be followed by the rattling of the door itself. The door would violently shake, as though someone were trying to break their way into the door. Sometimes the doorbell would stop ringing entirely, and the doors on the side of the house and the windows, well, they would start shuddering and rattling wildly, as if there was some sort of force that was about to just pull them off the building entirely. Whatever this force was, it was very prompt, for the knocking would often start around 5 p.m. in the early evening, and then would repeatedly knock and ring and knock and ring until almost midnight. It would be so loud that neighbors down the block would clearly hear the sounds and wonder what was going on. Well, three weeks of this went by. It was very disturbing, as you can imagine, for everybody in the house. The young girls were afraid to go to sleep, and the wife was trying to urge her husband, Edward, to seek out the help of spiritualists, of mediums who might be able to solve what this entity might be up to. But he had some more practical ideas of trying to figure out what was going on. One day, he began sprinkling flour and ashes along the foot of the door, thinking, of course, it was some troublesome neighborhood kid. Mm -hmm. Well, he would be able to capture the footprints, and they'd sort of figure out what was going on. However, after an evening of this vigorous knocking and hellish bell ringing, upon investigation discovered that the ash had gone undisturbed and that there were no footprints in front of the door. Eventually, he and his servants would actually go outside and stand in the yard for the whole evening just to see, just to figure out what was going on. They would actually stand there and watch as the door began rattling and the sounds were emitted, but there was nothing there causing it. They would see the door shaking. They would see the windows rattling. So uh, after this, I mean... Smith did eventually call for help, but not a medium. He called the police. So enter police captain McLaughlin, who said, quote, Take my word for it. We will capture the ghost if it has flesh and blood and is viable to mortal eyes. So he and his detective and several other police officers were stationed around the house for an entire evening with one officer at every door. And again it came, the knocking and the rattling and the ringing. It all returned stronger than ever. One officer even held the bell mechanism of the doorbell, like kind of tied it together so mm-hmm. it wouldn't ring, but still the bell rang. So officers were stationed in the house the next night as well. The doorbell itself was then muffled with a handkerchief, and Smith declared he would dismantle the doorbell, and if it continued to ring in his own hand, he would destroy it. At that moment, with the police officers scattered throughout the house, There was a terrible sound of shattering. The family ran to the dining room to discover that a window had been smashed open 
and on the ground lay a brick that had sat behind the house in the alleyway. So basically, in order for this brick to travel and smash the window, it would have had to have been thrown with amazing force. And yet, disregarding all rules of physics, it sat right there under the window as though within the house itself, it lost momentum and just fell to the floor. Regarding the brick incident, according to the New York Times, quote, this was the most serious demonstration the invisible agency had yet made and can only be accounted for on the theory that the ghost, if ghost it was, wished to show its contempt for the Brooklyn police. Wow. So, among other things, this is now getting covered by the New York Times. So, everybody's talking about it. Everybody is talking about this, certainly in the neighborhood, but beyond. Literally, each evening, hundreds of people would gather outside of the building, or at least outside those iron gates, to witness whatever this horrible disruption was. It was reported on during the day by at least three different newspapers, which I find incredible. Back to the Daily Eagle, mm-hmm. uh, which you quoted, I shall quote them here also, quote, the neighborhood is a most respectable one and a ghost could not select a more quiet locality for its operations. So a little bit tongue in cheek, but there mm-hmm. was no explanation over what was going on. Eventually, spiritualists did arrive at the front door offering up their services, and one woman even came and offered to hold a seance there on the front lawn. Now, of course, if this were a horror movie at this moment, the family would just move out of the house and never look back. Why did they stick around? I would have been out of there. (laughs) It's a a nice house. Smith, for his part, refused to be deterred by this, and actually even the boarders who lived in the house were like, well, it's haunted, but I'm sure the rent was reduced by that point, and, and it was like, it's a nice place to live. The captain, Captain McLaughlin, left this experience and would later claim it single-handedly determined for him the existence of ghosts with malicious intent to disturb the living. To this day, it is a documented, unsolved mystery of the Brooklyn Police Department. There was an officially filed police report and to this day remains unsolved. So wait, the house is still there and... And this yes. is still an open case? We really don't know who was haunting it? No, I mean, eventually it went away. But many speculated that this secret to this particular malicious ghost, the secret lied in the house next door, 140 Clinton Street, which is also a house that's still standing to this day. It was claimed that during the 1870s, there were a series of seances that occurred in this house over the past few years. And perhaps it was these spirits that were lingering on. Well, that doesn't seem like a very satisfying explanation. Well, Tom, I have my own theories here as to what might have gone on. Do tell. Well, all the way down Clinton Avenue, so if you keep following it and it hits the Brooklyn Navy Yard there, well, the Brooklyn Navy Yard sits in an area of the East River called Wallabout Bay. And during the Revolutionary War, many thousands of Americans and those fighting on the side of George Washington were kept in prison ships here, and thousands of them died from torture and from starvation and disease. For many, many decades during the 19th century, these bodies were incurred in a crypt near the Brooklyn Navy Yard before they were eventually moved on up to the prison ship Martyrs Monument in Fort Greene Park, and that's still there today as well. This house, 136 Clinton Avenue, is situated very close to that monument. So perhaps it was one of those dislodged, tragic spirits 
just trying to get somebody's attention. And, and by the way, that house is still there today. Yes, I mean, one of the more interesting aspects of these stories is they often interact with, you know, buildings you don't normally walk by or pieces of infrastructure. You know, this reminds me of many of your stories because I know that you fancy a good tale Mm -hmm. featuring a building or some object in the city that people can interact with to this day. I mean, that's what makes them fun, right? Well, yeah, all the way back on our second ghost story show in 2008, I told the story of Elma Sands and the well that is still located, you know, on Spring Street in Soho today in the downstairs of a store. A a ghost story that we like so much that we would then re-record it as its own dedicated show. Yeah, we kind of stripped out the the uncertain ghost aspect and told it more as a straight-up murder mystery. Right, which I think is more perhaps appropriate. I, I also love, like, a good haunted house, which is the case of the Poltergeist of 27th Street, one of my favorites, mm. from 2016. Also, I mean, hands down, one of my favorites was the story that the ghostly tenants who refused to check out of a boarding house on West 14th Street in the 1880s. And that one, again, all came from New York Times articles. All of it. However, I think that many of my favorite stories take me to the theater district, which was the case in 2011 when we visited the ghost of Judy Garland at the Palace Theater. Mm -hmm. And then also just three years ago in 2018 for our show on ghost stories of Hell's Kitchen. And is one of those your favorite? Indeed, yeah. I think this story from our Hell's Kitchen show has a little bit of everything because it takes us to the 1960s. We've got ghosts, seances, and musical theater all rolled up into one. All right, well, I'm going to take us away from here, downtown 10 blocks, to a townhouse at 428 West 44th Street between 9th and 10th Avenues. The, the house is still there, Greg. It's a lovely 1860s-era brick townhouse with three stories and a basement apartment. There's a, there's a small private garden area in the front with a steep staircase leading up to the front door. Now, in the 1960s, Just about 100 years after it was constructed, the home's rather famous owner found herself visited nightly by an unwanted visitor, a ghostly visitor who knocked and banged about the kitchen and finally revealed herself and her tragic past. For this is a story of Hungry Lucy Wreaks Havoc. Okay, well, there is a whole lot of drama in this story. Mm -hmm. A lot of drama, that is, because the townhouse today finds itself on a rather dramatic block. Hmm. You'll find it wedged between the actor's studio and the new dramatists, um, both of which are located in former 19th century churches. Hmm. So it's in between the two. So how could this not be dramatic? So thousands of actors have walked this street over the decades. Tens of thousands. And even lived on this block. But here at 428 West 44th Street, an actress named June Havoc 
purchased the building in 1962. She was intent on living on the main floor while renting out the other floors to tenants. So June Havoc, can you remind me of something I've seen her in? Was she was she was a film and a Broadway star? Oh, and I mean, she has an amazing story. I'd love to do a whole show on her. <laughs> She was a well-known Broadway actress, a film actress, um, a TV actress. She even did soap operas at the end of her career. But her own story is today really often overshadowed by the fictionalized version of her life that was written by her sister, Miss Gypsy Rose Lee. Mm. Now, anybody out there who's familiar with the musical Gypsy, and I have a feeling that's a high percentage of our listeners, Greg, (laughs) you know the story about the young June Havoc, or Baby June, as she was known, on the vaudeville circuit. Baby June is rather spoiled by her stage mom, Rose, who and, and Baby June later runs off to escape her, you know, overbearing mother. And meanwhile, June's second fiddle sister, Louise, goes on to find stardom in the American burlesque scene as Gypsy Rose Lee. Baby Jane, I mean, Baby June, (laughs) sorry. Baby June Uh was invented for the musical, like this particular name for her? or No, Gypsy Rose Lee took a lot of liberties when she wrote her memoir in 1957, upon which the musical was based. Mm. June, however, did perform in vaudeville as Baby June. Mm -hmm. She did have an overbearing stage mother. All of this is true. She did overshadow her sister, Louise, who would then go on to become Gypsy Rose Lee, a famous burlesque performer. However, Gypsy the musical forgets to mention that June, Baby June, also goes on to become famous. If you only know the musical, Baby June, June just kind of disappears at the end of it. So we're paying June her due here in this ghost story show. And she deserves it because June went on to star in in movies. She was in The Gentleman's Agreement. She was on TV. She was on Broadway. She was on, she was in Pal Joey on Broadway. And by the way, June was born in Vancouver on November 8th, 1912. Her full name was Ellen June Evangeline Hovick. So she tweaked it. She tweaked her maiden name to come up with her stage name, Havoc. Havoc. All right. So June Havoc Mm -hmm. purchases this townhouse on 44th Street. Between 9th and 10th. In 1962 and begins renting out the floors above her to various tenants. What's interesting about 1962, by the way, is that Gypsy had already opened and closed the phenomenally successful first stage version with Ethel Merman. But 1962 is the same year that the film version with Rosalind Russell came out. So she must have felt very much like, you know, part of popular culture. But June is now finding herself quite busy. She has a TV talk show. Uh, She was working on various theater projects with Helen Hayes and others. She thought that this would make a very convenient home base. She, she could easily get to the theaters. That home had been owned for many years uh, by the Rodenberg family. And then it was purchased and it was renovated by a man named Mr. Payne, who then sold it to June Havoc. 
June moved into the the main floor apartment in 1962, an apartment that had strangely been vacant for many years. It seemed that they were having a hard time renting it out. She found out quickly why, of course, because it turns out that that apartment was noisy. There were banging noises uh, that really often startled her in the middle of the night. Well, I think that sounds like a standard New York City apartment. I think we've all had noisy neighbors. <laughs> or we've had a noisy radiator. Or that mm-hmm. one pipe in the corner, you oh, know, yeah. the ghost uh-huh. pipe that starts clicking or banging. Uh-huh. Well, that's what June thought, too. So she just kind of shrugged it off, you know, and maybe thought that earplugs could take care of it. And she just put up with it for a number of years. According to an interview that she gave to the Daily News years later, she was working with Helen Hayes on a show, and she was trying to explain why she looked so tired. I was complaining about a headache I had because of a lack of sleep. I was, I was hearing noises at 3 or 4 in the morning. So she called in a plumber to check out the pipes. She called, she called in an architect to check out the floors. Nobody could find any reason why there'd be this tapping noise. Other people heard it too. It wasn't just her. Friends visiting, her cleaning lady, everybody had experienced these noises in Miss Havoc's apartment. What do you even do when something like this happens? Well, you couldn't dial 311 back in 1964. (laughs) No. So she did the second best thing. She got in touch with paranormal researcher and author Hans Holzer, who had written several books on ghost hunting. Well, Holzer decided to investigate, and for that, he would need a medium. Madame Blavatsky, of course, was no longer available. She had passed on to the other world. So he invited instead along a famous British medium, a woman named Sybil Leake. So in 1964... Holzer, Sybil Leake, and a small group of journalists documenting this, this whole event, they descended upon June Havoc's kitchen to try to communicate with whatever spirit was creating this noise, and, and they were going to try to get this to stop. So when the group arrived, and, and June Havoc led them back to the kitchen, there was indeed a very loud tapping coming from the kitchen. Holzer tried to speak directly to the spirit. What do you want? He said. And the noise stopped. Now, mind you, this isn't just Holzer's account. This was witnessed by the other journalists. They even had a TV crew in there because June Havoc had a TV show. And this was being recorded for the show. But the whole group sat at a table in the kitchen. And Sybil tilted back her head, closed her eyes and went into a trance. Suddenly, Sybil started channeling the spirit, speaking as the spirit, when she cried out, Hungry! No food! I want some food! They learned that her name was Lucy, that the year was 1792, and that there wasn't a house there. She wasn't in a kitchen. She was... She was just in a field. Soldiers, in fact, had put her there, had sent her away. There was somebody in charge of the soldiers named Napier. Nobody there would listen to her. And that's why she was making so much noise, because she's hungry and she wanted somebody to listen to her. 
She said, They picked me up. Man brought me here, put me down on this spot. But she didn't want to leave that spot. But then, then the spirit left Sybil, who woke up out of her trance, and instantly, the sound started up in the kitchen again. But wait, it gets creepier. Because then Sybil felt the presence of a young girl in the corner in the living room. So they went in there and they sat around a Victorian table, which they all put their hands on and it started moving and flying around the room. Once it settled down, it started tapping out a code. They recognized that it was a code, so they started counting the taps, one tap for each letter of the alphabet. And slowly, slowly, the spirit was was tapping out a, a message to them. They all listened together. The cameras were on. Everybody witnessed. Tap, 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 tap. L. Tap, 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 tap. E. Tap. A. Followed by V. E. Leave. The table spun out of control, moving and careening, as Holzer described it, around the room. Then it lost its power and collapsed. The party was over. So was that the end of Lucy? Did she leave? Well, I think Lucy wanted them to leave. Although things did die down for a couple of days. Until a few nights later, when June Havoc was startled awake in the middle of the night. This time, the tapping wasn't in the kitchen. Back to that interview in the Daily News, she said, Instead of incessant banging and tapping, there was this hideous screaming. And this time, it sounded like it was coming from within a box directly over me. It was directly above her bed. And meanwhile, they'd been researching the information that they got from the medium during that trance. They looked into Napier, whom Lucy had mentioned, and it turned out that he had been a British officer during the Revolution. Napier's family had died of yellow fever, and he had been sent back to England. So were they ever able to communicate with Lucy again? Well, the next January, 1965, Sybil again went into a trance in the presence of Holzer. She started talking as Lucy this time. She was complaining about all the people and all the activity in that house. She said, people there, too much June, too many clocks. She sings, dances, she makes a lot of noise. I'm hungry. I'm always hungry. You don't do a thing about it. But then Lucy revealed that she was waiting, in fact, for her dear Alfred, a a love of hers named Alfred Bailey. He said that he would come back for her at 3 o'clock in the morning, which is why she's always there and ready at 3 o'clock in the morning. But she can't get out to meet him. She can't get out because she's stuck. Holzer spent time encouraging Lucy to leave, to go and find Alfred. He told her that she could find him if she just left this place. June Havoc reported over the next few nights and weeks that the sounds had become much quieter. They were still there, but they were more spread around the house, but much calmer. They did have one more seance, just to check in on everybody to make sure everything was okay. Sybil went into her trance, but Lucy never showed up. Instead, this time, it was Alfred who showed up. He was there, waiting for Lucy. 
This time, Holzer told Alfred that he must leave. He must tell his officer Napier to, to let him go and to go find Lucy. He told him that she had just gone off to beat him. And that, that was the final seance that was ever held in the home. June Havoc's midnight disturbances ceased. Alfred had been convinced to leave in search of his love. And Lucy, well, Lucy finally found the thing that she'd hungered for. We've got three more ghost stories for you after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Price drop. Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. So the next two ghost stories that you are about to hear 
were chosen by those who support us on Patreon. We have been running a poll over on Patreon this week asking people what their favorite ghost stories over the years have been. Now, there is one absolute runaway favorite, which you'll hear in just a few minutes. But the next story is actually the runner-up and is in a very lively, famous old tavern in Lower Manhattan and has a different kind of a tone than many of the more frightening ghost stories that we've told over the years. So we're going all the way downtown to 326 Spring Street on the far lower west side to what is truly a haunted house and almost 200 years old. Today it is a tavern called Ear Inn. Oh, I've seen the Ear Inn, Mm -hmm. right. The name of this story is The Saucy Sailor. So at this particular address, it's one of the oldest federal homes still standing in New York City. No surprise that a building this old would be possessed with a few spirits in it. Historians believe it was built in the early 1800s, probably sometime during the years of the War of 1812. It was built by a man named James Brown. He was a black ex-slave, a war veteran of the Revolutionary War, and an aide to George Washington. Some speculate that he is actually represented in that famous painting, Washington Crossing the Delaware. Really? That he is actually in that painting. You'll have to give it a close look. So Mr. Brown built this three-story home here, operated a tobacco store on the first floor, and then lived upstairs. And there was the third floor was an attic room. At this time, in the early 19th century, it was situated right on the waterfront. Now, over the years, the house didn't move, The waterfront actually did, thanks to added landfill. Right, because now it's a couple blocks away from the actual water. Right. In 1817, a tavern was opened here, um, which would make it one of the oldest operating pubs in New York City. Throughout the 19th century, it was a few other things as well. Flash forward to 1890, when an Irish immigrant reopened the place as a tavern and operated it quite successfully, almost until the end of Prohibition, of course. Until the end of Prohibition? Well, let's just say it still served booze during Prohibition, for it was also, like so many buildings, was also a speakeasy. And like so many buildings upstairs, it was a brothel. A small brothel, but a brothel, nonetheless. Now, the place reopened after Prohibition as an old salty sailor's bar. Um, There was no name attached to it, but because of the prominence of the green door that you had to open to get inside of it, they called it the Green Door. Now, it was around this period of time, so the middle of the 20th century here, that the bar was frequented by a young sailor by the name of Mickey. Uh, We don't know his last name. It's been lost to the sands of time. The only traits that we know about him are the ones that he still exhibits in the building to this day and for over 60 years. Now, for, at some point, uh, perhaps during a drunken bender, one evening, he left the green door. Now, he wouldn't have heard the sound of boats. He would have actually heard the sound of trains for the Spring Street Terminal was situated right across the street. So it also created a lot of traffic around this area of the city. We don't know the circumstances. Mickey was hit by a car and killed. 
Now, life here at the Green Door was pretty uneventful for the next few decades, but people made note of the building's particular history. I mean, by the 1960s, it was a building that was 150 years old, and it was rescued, of course, by this drive to preserve landmarks in the mid-1960s. So, in, indeed, in 1969, this very building was made into a New York landmark. So in 1977, some college students moved in upstairs and eventually bought the whole building. These college students had operated a music magazine called The Ear, and they decided to name the bar after the magazine. So they decided to put a little black paint over part of the B in bar. Oh, in the neon sign. Right, so that it would spell ear. And so from that point forward, it became The Ear Inn. Very comfy, very out-of-the-way place to have a drink with a lot of seafaring and historical clutter on the walls, old photographs. There's even a large ear on the wall. There's something so charming and popular about the place that even Mickey, who had been killed decades before, even Mickey has returned. Now, the current owner of the Ear Inn claims that it is a fact that Mickey still haunts the Ear Inn to this day certainly a restless spirit. Maybe part of the reason he's sticking around, because as the bar was mostly patronized by men back in the day, well, he can't stop being a little flirtatious. Sounds like Mickey's a little randy. Randy and rude. Women patrons have reported being pinched while standing at the bar. They'll be startled, obviously. They'll turn as if to like tell them to back off, and no one would be standing there. The fireplace would sometimes light a flame all by itself. In fact, there was a fire in 1996 that to this day, no one knows quite how it started there. Some attribute that fire to this mischievous little spirit, Mickey. You know, it's a small place, so I mean, Mickey might poke you or touch you while you're there. Um, Sometimes he might just be standing in the corner watching you as you're drinking or while you're talking with your friends and just looking at you. Occasionally, he gets rather thirsty. Diners have sworn that their drinks have disappeared from people's tables. And this is something that has been pervasively mentioned and noticed throughout the years. These disappearing drinks. Disappearing drinks at a bar. It's incredible. It must be a ghost, Greg. It must be a ghost. Many customers report seeing a ghostly shape in the corner or a shadow of a man being cast upon their table as they're sitting there when nothing is standing behind them. Although these days, it seems like Mickey seems to stay up in the attic today, which is just a little storage. But there used to be apartments up there, believe it or not. People used to live there. Women who lived there reported as they were going to bed at night and just tucking in, they would feel a shudder and they would feel as though like somebody was entering the bed, a shifting of the sheets and the blankets. And of course they turn and there would, there would be nobody in bed with them. Other times the beds would just shake violently in the middle of the night. One family who had actually rented that space moved out because they were so disturbed by these nighttime visitations. Perhaps they weren't frightened necessarily because Mickey doesn't seem to have been a sort of an ominous ghost, but they were just not getting any sleep. And again, they thought it was just Mickey. Or was it? Many years ago, the owner allowed a documentary film crew into the ear end to film for about three days. And they, of course, naturally, in these stories, brought a psychic with them. The psychic attempted to communicate with Mickey and then, you know, pry him away from his ghost booze or whatever, 
But then she discovered something else, that there were more spirits in the house, that there were several that inhabited the ear inn. So this bar is truly full of spirits. In today's modern context, of course, Mickey's behavior, well, this is unwanted oh, sexual assault, of course. Absolutely. Well, a crowded historic bar is no excuse <laughs> for inappropriate contact. It absolutely is not. Now, I wanted to experience Mickey myself. So this past Monday, it was a stormy, rainy night. Do you remember that? It was very, oh, yeah. like, almost foggy. I thought, well, that would be a perfect time to see if I could uh, introduce myself mm. to Mickey and let him know what they were talking about him on the podcast. I did go to the ear Inn and had a charming dinner and a couple nice brews and even sat in that back dining room that so much history has gone through, of course. I didn't see Mickey, unfortunately, but if I had a few more drinks, I'm sure I, he would have popped right in front of me. <laughs> and he may have even helped you finish those drinks. <laughs> oh, that's true, right. I'm glad that the listeners chose that. That also reminds me that one of the great parts of telling these ghost stories is that we often visit the places. We'll sometimes have experiences that we'll bring into the show, so... That's awfully fun. And of course, I'll pay ear in a visit again just to say howdy to Mickey later this week. But our winning ghost story, Greg, the runaway winner, takes us actually up to the Upper West Side, to Central Park West and West 72nd Street. This is the haunting of the Dakota. Their spooky story, Greg, conjures up the photograph that you and I have seen, and we posted on the blog, of Central Park in the 1880s, with the Dakota apartment building rising up behind it. Remember oh, yes. this, this famous photo? That's a very famous photo, and it's a perfect image of the Gilded Age, and certainly doesn't seem like a scary place. Not necessarily. In fact, it seems today like a rather glamorous apartment building, and it indeed it is today one of the most glamorous in the city. And since it opened, the Dakota has been home to an exclusive roster of residents. But some of them, it seems, have never moved out. For this is the tale, Greg, of the children who never left the Dakota. <laughs> now, Greg, before I freak you out, and seriously, I can't wait to see your face when I tell you this story... Let's quickly review the history of the Dakota, shall we? Let's do. Now, we did talk about the Dakota in one of our very first podcasts so many years ago. That's right. 600 years ago, we <laughs> talked about Dakota. I think it was in the first 10, wasn't it? It was actually done before our first ghost story. So wow. I'm, I'm anxious to hear a recap of its history. The building was constructed between 1880 and 1884, and the man who's responsible for constructing the Dakota was the head of the Singer Sewing Machine Company, a man named Edward Clark. It's interesting because Singer would be responsible for a couple major buildings, including, of course, the skyscraper known as the Singer Building, which was the tallest in the world. So they knew a, a thing or two about stitching and constructing mm -hmm. buildings. 
uh, and they weren't afraid to construct in the newly developing city because at this time in the 1880s the city is moving up the island uh, but the upper west side was pretty barren there wasn't much construction happening up here of course the land had been divided for decades up into blocks and lots had been sold off and there were some homes up there but nothing big and grand on this scale had been built on the upper west side or here along the strip of central park west so Clark hires the architecture firm of Henry Hardenberg to design this giant building for him, a commission that he took on with great fun and flair, and he brought together all kinds of eclectic architectural styles. I've seen it described as Gothic and also as North German Renaissance style. Some say that the, the building looks like a town hall from northern Germany, a Rathaus. It has some of the same characteristics. And you can see some of that reflected in, of course, its younger brother building, which is the Plaza Hotel. Which Hardenberg would also design, but much later, in 1905. Mm -hmm. So the Dakota apartment building has 10 floors, although only the first eight had apartments on them. When it opened, it had 65 apartments, uh, ranging from four to 20 rooms. And these were lavish when they opened. And there were elaborate new innovations that were available in this apartment building because in the 1880s, apartment living was still kind of a new concept and here they had a dumbwaiter system so that you could send up meals to people directly into their apartment from the kitchen downstairs. Uh, it had its own power plant downstairs, a tennis court, a gym up on the roof. It had a lot going for it to, to attract the wealthiest families in New York. It would be a resounding success when it opened, and Hardenberg himself would go on to design more hotels, like the Waldorf Hotel in 1893 on Lower Fifth Avenue, and then the Astoria Hotel in 1897, just next door. So this was at 34th and 5th Avenue, correct? And so as the combined Waldorf Astoria Hotel, they were there well into the 20th century. Right, and they would be demolished in 1929 to make way for the construction of the Empire State Building. But now we're way downtown. We don't want to be at the Empire let's, State let's Building. Go back let's up go to the, back yes. up to the Dakota. Yes, far up. In fact, isn't that where the name kind of comes from? Because it was perceived as being so in the wilderness so far out west? That is an urban legend surrounding the naming of the building. But in fact, Clark, the developer from Singer Sewing Machines, was a big fan of the new western states that had been settled and the western territories. So no, it was named by Clark in appreciation for the state of Dakota. A salute. Of the will. Dakotas. Mm -hmm. So who were some of the first guests at the Dakota? Who who braved the Western front <laughs> out to, to live here at the Dakota? Well, wealthy families in the 1880s and 1890s, and then really took a turn for the arts in the early 20th century and became a real who's who. Big names in 20th century art, theater, and music lived here. Really big names, like Leonard Bernstein had a very large apartment. Lauren Bacall, one of your favorite oh, yeah. actresses, lived there, of course. Judy Garland lived here. Boris Karloff. And of course, John Lennon and Yoko Ono, among many, many others. In fact, Yoko still lives there. Even after the events of December 8th, 1980, when Yoko and John were coming back from the recording studio late at night, and John was shot four times under the arched entryway on the sidewalk entering his building. He was pronounced dead on the scene at Roosevelt Hospital. And in the ensuing days, thousands of mourners would gather in the streets surrounding the Dakota apartment building, and then just across the street in Central Park. But this was 1980, right? Yes. So, But even before 1980, this building had a 
kind of ominous reputation anyway, thanks to a little pop culture phenomenon called Rosemary's Baby. Indeed. Twelve years before, in 1968, Roman Polanski set his devilishly creepy film starring Mia Farrow in the Dakota, although it would only use the building's extra creepy gothic ornamental facade and would be shot in the streets around the Dakota. Nothing was actually shot inside. So all of those interiors, the really sort of sad barren apartments and the super creepy hallways and closets and neighbors' apartments, all of that was recreated on a Hollywood soundstage. That's not how it really looks, I can imagine. The movie came out in 1968. However, already in the early 1960s, there had been reports of unusual things happening. Spirits hanging around, uninvited visitors walking through apartments. Part of this could have been the fact that in the later 20th century, some of these very large apartments had been subdivided, you know, divided up to make them a little bit more economically feasible. The problem with subdividing these kinds of apartments is that you're sometimes, you know, sort of breaking off and interrupting the flow of the apartment. You're you're just kind of throwing off the aura of the space and you don't really know if that could have unintended consequences. Well, since the 1960s, there have been these strange reports, lots of odd sounds, you know, that's always pretty common, obviously, in a building like this, with all those balconies and those turrets and and those old windows rattling. But then you've got lights turning on and off on their own. Down in the basement, you have tools sort of flying off the shelves. But nothing out of the ordinary for a building of that age, maybe. Well, let me tell you about a, a girl who appears every now and again. She's dressed in clothing from long, long ago. She's under the age of 10. She's been spotted numerous times bouncing her ball in the hallway as if she's looking for somebody to play with. But she's never with anybody else, and she doesn't respond to people who call out to her. She was once approached by a woman in one of the lobbies. There are four lobbies um, that you can enter from the courtyard. And a woman was waiting for somebody in the lobby when she looked over and saw this girl dressed so unusually and, you know, like somebody had dressed her in vintage clothing from the 1920s and she was just bouncing and she walked off into the other room, this side room off to the side. And the woman found it a little bit unsettling and, and went in to see if she was okay. She opened up the door and it was just a closet, a very mm. small closet. Nobody was in it. A few years after that, in the 1960s, actress Judy Holliday had just bought an apartment in the building and was preparing her apartment to move in. She hired three painters to get the place ready for her, and all three of them had uninvited visitors. Well, one of them was working in a a room painting when a 10-year-old who was dressed in a suit uh, from the early 1900s walked straight through the room just leaving a sort of musty smell in his trail. Another was in a walk-in closet, a giant closet, and he was doing some touch-up painting. The door was closed, and suddenly the light went out. He fumbled around and, you know, hit his ladder and was looking for the light switch and flipped it back on. Looked to see what could have knocked it out. There was nothing in there. Nobody was in there with him. But to his horror, suddenly his hand was grabbed and placed on the burning light bulb. But there was nobody there, and he ripped his hand off the bulb. 
Well, at this point, you can imagine that the men wanted to work together in Miss Holiday's sure. barn. So all three were painting in a large room together when they all witnessed a man walking straight through the room. And his age was rather hard to tell because his body was that of, you know, a 20-something-year-old. But his face was that of a young child. <laughs> At that point, they told Miss Holiday that her apartment was ready. Wait a minute. Go, go back to this man with a child's face. Yes. No clue as to who this might have been? No, and, and Greg, there are other stories. You know, there are all kinds of reports of, of odd things that happened in the Dakota's basement, in the tool area. Maintenance guys, electricians, they've, you know, many people have talked about odd things, odd sounds, tools flying through the air. One electrician in particular uh, reported seeing a short man with just a beard, no mustache, sort of tinkering around. By all accounts, his description matched that of Edward Clark, who built the Dakota. So it could very well be that Mr. Clark just never left home. Still an absolutely chilling story, and one of my favorites, too. Now for our final story here, we are going to go back to that first episode, 2007. It kicked our tradition off, so Mm -hmm. of course we're eternally grateful for what we did on on that show. But, you know, it's very, very rudimentary compared to what we do today. And in particular, there was one story that we told on that episode that... We wanted to give it another go. This is the story of a young starlet named Olive Thomas, whose fate led her to the most glamorous role on Broadway, a role that she's never really given up, even more than a century after her accidental death. The name of this story is Olive's Midnight Frolic. Olive was born Olive Duffy on October 20th, 1894. One of three children in an Irish-American family living in a small mining town of Charleroi, Pennsylvania. Married and then quickly separated while still in her teens, Olive moved to New York to start over. And here, she found a job at a department store in Harlem. But she dreamed of making a name for herself on the Broadway stage. As we've said on many shows before, the theater district was absolutely booming at the start of the 20th century. So making it, when she moved here in 1913, making it meant making it here on the Broadway stage. And Olive was beautiful. In 1914, she was even selected the, quote, most beautiful girl in New York City in a contest that launched her modeling career. As her sister-in-law, the actress Mary Pickford, later wrote, The beauty of Olive Thomas is legendary. The girl had the loveliest violet blue eyes I've ever seen. They were fringed with long dark lashes that seemed darker 
because of the delicate translucent pallor of her skin. So how did Olive Thomas then finally wind up on Broadway? Well, she got introduced to Florence Ziegfeld, the great theatrical impresario who was always looking for beautiful women. He cast her in the Ziegfeld Follies of 1915, appearing at the New Amsterdam Theater on 42nd Street. That was a really big deal for somebody at the time. It was being in these big shows, these big reviews, that made you a really hot star. Florence Ziegfeld had created his Follies in 1907. They were modeled after the Folie Bergère in Paris. These were high-class reviews with all kinds of acts, including glamorous numbers by his troupe of beautiful chorus girls, the Ziegfeld Girls. They performed these tableau vivants with synchronized strutting and posing, always in these over-the-top costumes and, and sets by Joseph Urban. And that was just the show downstairs. By the time Olive had joined the Follies, there was another show happening up on the New Amsterdam's 600-seat rooftop theater, a show called Ziegfeld's Midnight Frolic. The audience for the frolic was mostly male, and they really enjoyed the dancing girls, who were sometimes wearing costumes made entirely of balloons, just waiting to be popped by the audience's cigars. The chorus girls danced across a glass-bottomed runway that was elevated high above the audience. You get the picture. Needless to say, the frolic was much more risque than the show happening downstairs. The next year, in 1916, Olive became even more famous as she got into the movies, first in short serials, and then in feature films, in which she was mostly cast as a vamp. And that same year, Olive Thomas found love. Now, Florence Ziegfeld encouraged his girls, and especially Olive, to steer clear of the so-called stage door Johnnies, the huddle of men who would wait outside of every performance. But in the end, she actually wound up with one of these suitors a dashing young man named Jack Pickford, the troubled playboy brother of film star Mary Pickford. He was also an actor, and the two eloped and were married on October 25th, 1916. They partied hard, but they also worked hard, and eventually they hardly even saw each other. So in the summer of 1920, just after she'd finished her feature film called The Flapper, the two decided to take a second honeymoon, this time to Paris. They spent the night of September 5th, 1920, living it up in the cafes of Montparnasse, and they returned to their hotel, the Hotel Ritz, in the middle of the night. Jack had already gone to sleep, and Olive stumbled around the room. She knew that this evening would require some help, maybe some sleeping pills. She headed for the bathroom, opened the medicine cabinet, and grabbed a blue bottle. She tried to focus on its label, but it was in French. It's fine, she thought, and drank it down. Unfortunately, it wasn't water or sleeping pills. It was mercury bichloride, a poisonous topical medication prescribed to Jack. Olive screamed, collapsed, and she died five days later in a hospital in Paris. A few days later, 
Jack brought her body back to New York by ocean liner, and Olive was buried at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. And so was this the end of Olive? Not quite. Strange things started happening almost immediately at the New Amsterdam Theater. Apparently, Olive didn't want to leave. She started appearing to the cast and crew. There were reports from stagehands and other cast members. They, they reported seeing her backstage in her full Follies costume, with her beaded dress, sash, and hat. And she was almost always carrying with her a big blue bottle. Could it have been the same bottle that held the mercury bichloride back in Paris? The last Follies was held at the New Amsterdam in 1927. And by 1937, the theater was showing movies. And then, for many decades, the New Amsterdam declined. By the 1980s, it was completely shuttered and sat empty. Or did it? In 1995, Disney started leasing and renovating the theater. One night during the renovation work, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, a night watchman was going through the theater, doing his rounds, checking in on the dark, cavernous theater. He was walking through the giant auditorium, shining his light between seats, climbing up on the stage, behind the curtains, in the wings, and poking around backstage. He had just started walking across the stage when his flashlight fell upon a beautiful woman. She was standing before him, wearing a green beaded dress, sash, a hat, and carrying a blue bottle. The security guard had never heard the legend. He just thought she was some sort of unusual intruder. He called out to her, and she turned and started walking away from him on the dark stage. He yelled after her, kept his light on her, which seemed to shine right through her. He watched her cross the stage to the stage wall, where she turned, blew him a kiss, and walked right out of the theater onto 42nd Street. Now, if you ever meet up with somebody in the cast or crew of a show at the New Amsterdam, ask them about Olive. Chances are they'll tell you about phantom taps on the shoulder, or lights flickering, or props moving about on their own. A few years ago, a Disney executive named Dana Amendola was holding a meeting in his office above the New Amsterdam. The group was discussing which of the Ziegfeld girls had become movie stars, and someone claimed that the true star of the silent age was Mary Pickford, Olive's sister-in-law. According to Amendola, at that moment, the group witnessed an entire stack of CDs fly off a table next to them and crash to the floor. Now, you may be thinking, did they ever call up a medium or a spiritualist to, to rid the theater of Olive's ghost? As far as we can tell, no, they never did. On the contrary, they've chosen to get used to Olive and accept that she's just a part of the theater. It's like she's part of the cast. They've hung two portraits of her in the theater, including one in the lobby, just to keep her happy and to show some respect. 
And to this day, the cast and crew of shows at the New Amsterdam greet her when they arrive and when they leave at night. Everybody takes a moment to yell out, Good night, Olive! As for the old rooftop theater, it seems in some ways the show never stopped. Over the years, that space has been used for rehearsals and storage, but it seems like way up there, perhaps Olive felt most at home. A few years back, one employee was all alone up there in that dark space going through some old boxes when he suddenly heard the distinct sound of tap dancing echoing through the old rooftop theater. But this tapping sounded as though it were on glass. It was in the room with him and coming from high above, high in the vast darkness. It seems that Olive's midnight frolic never closed. Now, in 2019, Tom and I attended an evening performance of Aladdin. Yes, which is the current tenant, once again, at the New Amsterdam. Yes, but when you walk in, you'll see a photograph of Olive. She's right there when you walk in off 42nd Street in the lineup of of cast photos. I have to imagine, just as we saw her photograph, that perhaps she saw us entering the theater and was not happy with how we told her story back in 2007, because during intermission, uh, I had actually wandered uh, upstairs because I just you know, wanted to see the theater and how beautiful it was. I came down and was on the staircase and kind of leaning against a wall, looking out. All of a sudden... A light bulb right above my head shattered. And in fact, the pieces of the light bulb like mixed in with my hair and I had to brush them out. And of course, the ushers came and swept up the light bulb. And we should add, uh, just to keep all the lawyers happy, that this does not typically happen in Disney theaters on Broadway. You know, no, light bulbs no. usually are not exploding over people's heads. These circumstances were unique, Greg. We left that theater. We posed for a picture with Olive, actually. And we made a vow at that time that we would return to her story. So we hope that this clears some things up and that Olive, whether she be at the New Amsterdam or not, appreciates her story being told. You can head over to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where you can find all 14 previous ghost stories episodes you can find all the ghost stories we've ever told should you want to spend most of a day listening to those historic tales <laughs> and as another reminder on halloween night this is 2021 check into joe's pub's youtube page to see a live streaming concert with us telling more ghost stories a huge thank you to our patrons who not only support the show not only keep us producing the show but helped us choose the stories for today's show. And you too can join the fun over at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. We have special audio extras for our patrons over there, along with some fun little swag you get for joining at different levels. But most importantly, you're keeping the show going. So thank you so much to the patrons who have joined us on Patreon. 
and fall is the right time for a walking tour. Just put on your sweater, get a pumpkin spice coffee, and mm. join one of the Bowery Boys walks, which are currently out on the streets right now. Yeah, join a group over at BoweryBoysWalks.com. Walk through the city's history or book your own private tour for your own family, your own group, or your own special event. We've got you covered and we'll bring the city's history to life. Check us out at BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you for joining us on this celebration of 15 years of ghost stories. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Price drop, time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last.